then turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. I only want to read the verses that we're planning to consider together today. I trust you will understand the context, but the verses that we read, if you look with me before we read that at the opening two words of verse 21, we read there, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. That is the opening of the new and major section of the book of Romans. Uh, After Paul announces his theme, he has entered into a section that we read the conclusion of today where God's wrath is revealed. And it is the closing parts of that argument that we read together today. So from verse 9 in chapter 3 to verse 20. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen. We'll end our reading. We trust the Lord to add his blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Lord, we have sung today a hymn. At least the opening stanza of that hymn is so familiar and has been at least familiar in our culture that many who don't know you know that hymn. But Lord, we sing that hymn. We read and understand the one who penned the words. We read through the successive stanzas And these truths of the gospel, what can be said of them but amazing grace? Lord, the words that we've read from your word today give, as it were, the foundation for that amazing realization that the grace that has been given to us when we are aptly described by the words we've just read is an amazing thing indeed. So help us today. We know that most of the phrases of what we've read today are very familiar. Many of these verses perhaps have been put to memory by many gathered here. 
But Lord, give us grace today to carefully consider them. Be reminded, if we know you, of the wonder of the work you've done in our own lives. And if there are any outside of Christ, that maybe even these very familiar words would lodge in the heart, be taken up by your Spirit, and you would breathe life into such a one. So grant us the help that we need. We acknowledge our need of help today. And we pray it in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Well, we have read today the sobering conclusion of the Apostle Paul's doctrine of sin. As we said before we read our Bible reading that these words form the end of what we might say is his opening argument. Uh, We haven't handed out an outline, but we've tried along the way to pause and just hit the high points. And after those words of introduction and Paul's statement, that clear statement of a theme, we might even raise it to the level of a thesis statement for the book he's about to write, um, the gospel is what he's bringing to us. But before Paul comes to unfold that gospel, that theme, he begins to unfold and explain the absolute necessity of that gospel. And so while he really technically begins to talk about the gospel in chapter 3, verse 21, the verse following where we ended our reading today, what he's done after the statement of his thesis to this point is prepare the ground to show with absolute certainty, with clarity, so that no one could misunderstand there is an absolute necessity of this gospel if any are to be saved. He's been making the case that all men are guilty before God. He's added a discussion, and that's occupied our attention for the last several weeks, because beginning in chapter 2, the opening verse, right through to the 8th verse of the 3rd chapter where we finished last Lord's Day, he's been dealing with potential objections to this doctrine. Now, he dealt with a major objection, as it were, through the whole of the second chapter, and then the eight verses we saw last time, almost a little rapid fire, little corollary uh, objections that have flowed, and these have come from those of a Jewish background. Now, we have sought to underscore that the truth he's talking about there isn't particularly in the modern context limited to Jews. You see, the problem is, as he dealt with chapter 1 unfolding that awful catalog of sin and depravity, there men are marked as willful rejectors of truth. That's darkened their hearts and minds. It sent them in a spiral downward in the openness of their sinfulness to the point that we read God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And we see that they're worthy of death. And it's not only those who do the same. They don't have to be merely the practitioners of those particular sins he's just listed. But to have pleasure in them. To consent to those things. And he could, as we've noted along the way, have almost closed his opening argument there. But the apostle recognizes the potential objectors. I think I said last week I'd never really thought of it in this, these terms until I was preparing last week's message. 
But when you see the objections that he's raised in chapter 2 and then these opening verses of chapter 3, he could almost hear the discussions in the lobby of the Jewish synagogues as he traveled from city to city preaching Christ. There were those who entertained the thought that somehow they were exempt from the condemnation that he had described in chapter 1. And so Paul bends over backwards to demonstrate that the Jews are not exempt from this condemnation. They've had privileges. They have had exceedingly high and precious privileges. They were the privileged recipients of fuller revelation. But they have twisted that revelation and those privileges to recklessly believe that somehow they were exempt from the judgment of God that they would be happy to say the Gentiles were under. And so from chapter 2 through to the 8th verse of chapter 3, Paul has carefully dismantled these objections. It is not belonging to a privileged class or performing some ecclesiastical ceremonies that fallen men need. It is a true righteous standing before God that they need. And you think of the thesis about the gospel. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Here, it's that true righteous standing before God that men need. He's gone into that and even outlined anticipating things from later in the book, the results of regeneration. Newness of heart or what he spoke to Nicodemus about in John 3, the necessity of being born again. It is how you receive that gift of righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus. And while these objections that he's been dealing with and we've looked at over the last several weeks have stemmed from Jewish objectors in Paul's experience, I hope at least along the way we've paused to make the application we pause and seek to make now. You don't have to be of Jewish heritage to commit the same crimes that these Jewish objectors were committing. There have been many in particularly the Western world with Christian influence, with Christian and at times godly upbringing that have somehow imagined that that upbringing, that that exposure to fuller revelation, that that connection to the covenant people of God and the church somehow exempts us from this condemnation that we might agree applies to the world and those that are out there that we're separated from. Well, let us hear the same words the apostle brought to the Jews. There's no heritage. There's no church ritual such as circumcision or in our case, baptism that makes you a child of God. There can be those that haven't had those privileges those that haven't experienced those church ordinances that are born again. And those that have experienced the privilege and the ordinances that are lost. 
And so Paul, I say, has dismantled this potential objection, this imagination that some people, some privileged people, aren't condemned like the rest of the world. And so Paul continues in verse 9 where we begin our thoughts today. And he brings this argument of universal guilt to its conclusion. As he breaks away from dealing with these objections and begins his concluding remarks, Paul compiles quite an impressive list of Old Testament quotations to bolster his case. Now there's just a remarkable testimony again of the unity of the Testaments, of the truth of the same gospel carrying through from both Testaments. I thought of looking at these piece by piece as we go along. I don't want to do or plan to do that today, but just listen, if you will, to the references that Paul has either directly quoted or summarized in quotation through these verses from verse 9 and following. He quotes opening from Psalm 14 and verse 3, and we'll comment more on that one as we go along. He quotes Psalm 14.2. He quotes Psalm 53.3. He quotes Psalm 14.3 again. He quotes Psalm 53.4. He quotes Psalm 5.9. He quotes Psalm 139, verse 4. He quotes Psalm 10, verse 7. He quotes Isaiah 59, verses 7 to 8. He concludes the listing with Psalm 36 and verse 1. And then as he concludes the whole section again, refers to Psalm 143 and verse 2. Paul was rather well grounded in his Old Testament scriptures. Thankfully, helped by the Spirit of God to understand the Old Testament Scriptures and to be able to use them in bringing this New Testament epistle of Romans and this teaching of universal guilt to its close. Paul has used these quotations as a rapid-fire rehearsal of Old Testament truth almost like a hammer just to pound away at the simple, unassailable fact of man's sinfulness. This is, if we could state it in this way, the pinnacle of the Scripture's doctrine of universal guilt. Now, there are other portions of Scripture that with, could we say, different flair and flavor speak to us of depravity, speak to us of sin, All of that we certainly recognize, but Paul has labored here to bring the summary of all Scripture together, but I say in such a a compilation and in funneling into this final argument of what we must say is a doctrine of universal guilt. Nobody is exempt. This sin, this condemnation, This condition of death and judgment because of sin belongs to all men. No one. Privileged or underprivileged. No one is exempt. No one can plead ignorance. All must confess to their sinfulness. All must recognize their tendencies to suppress truth to suppress the light that's shining to them, even those that possess the Scriptures in abundance, twisted them in their suppression of their truth to come out from under this condemnation 
that is universal. I want to, in some ways, I don't know if it's breaking a rule of homiletics today, but the theme that I put before you is the theme of this passage is that of universal guilt. But I want to put before you for our main thoughts today four points. They're not really sub-points of that, but they're different directions from which to look at this truth of universal guilt. And all four of these I prefix or preface with the word universal. I think if we look at this passage, we see these things. We see universal accountability. We're going to see universal sin. We see universal condemnation. And then finally, if we time remaining just briefly, the fourth heading of universal helplessness. So four additional universals, if you will, underneath the the broader theme of universal guilt. The first one I put before you is this, universal accountability. I want to have you read with me again verse 9 and then verse 19. What then? Are we better than they? Now let's pause here. Uh, Commentators struggle a little bit. Uh, I think the main body, and to me what is clearly in line with the context, would agree that Paul's talking here about Jews still. What then are we better than they? He's been dealing with all these objections. He himself is a Jew. But he, he says, what then are we better than they? No and no wise. And then he speaks about what he's established already really in chapter 1, but that he's emphasized, applies to everybody in chapter 2, including the Jews underneath it. We have before proved. Now you may have a marginal reading there. Uh, This can be translated, perhaps better translated here, we've before charged. Uh, But I think proved uh, fits in a sense because we're both charging and proving our, our words that are the context of the courtroom. It's it's legal demonstration of evidence that Paul has put forth here. And he says here, we before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. I was reading one that paused to highlight there just that picture of being under sin. It speaks of sin's tyranny. The impact that it has in the lives of all. What Paul is saying here, and again the point we're making, is there's there's universal accountability. Paul is saying all these objections that the enlightened, privileged, possessor of Scripture, Jewish people might want to put forth, they're to no avail. The privileges were real. The accountability based on those privileges is great. But just... Being a child of Abraham, just going to church, doesn't bring you out from under this condemnation. There's universal accountability. He's before proved both Jews and Gentiles, they're all under sin. Now read with me verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, saith to them who are under the law. Now let me pause there. There's going to be a point very soon in our studies in Romans, that I'm probably going to take a little aside uh, 
and deal with how Paul uses the word law, uh, not only in Romans, but the rest of the New Testament, because he uses the word law in a variety of ways. Um, And we have to very often uh, look at the context to understand just in what way Paul's using it. For example, he will use the word law at times to refer to the scriptures. Uh, he talked about the Jews. They were the recipients of the law. But then he speaks about the Gentiles who didn't have the law. Okay, they didn't have the scriptures. But they show the work of the law written on their hearts. So there's something beyond scripture that he's talking about there that the Gentiles know about. The Gentiles are possessors of. So there's law that's Above, beyond, if you will, Scripture, there's that moral law of God written on the heart. There's going to be a time where he uses law with reference to a principle, we'll see. And actually, the paragraph that closes this chapter, Paul almost ransacks the different ways he uses the word. But back up to verse 19 for our point here. We know that what things soever the law says... It says to them who are under the law. And what does he conclude from that? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Universal accountability. I don't want to take the time to flesh it out, but I want to mention this here. I remember wrestling with this in seminary and in my pre-seminary days with the overriding journey I was on between a dispensational understanding of the overview of Scripture and a covenantal understanding of the overview of Scripture. Well, one of the problems with dispensationalism is their view of the law. They view law as a, a Jewish thing, an Old Testament thing, and it's done away with entirely. And they don't hold to our doctrine of the moral law of God. And then when we further study the scriptures, the the threefold division of those Old Testament references to law, the civil laws that pertain to the nation of Israel as a nation and how they were to govern themselves, the ceremonial law, which we could say had predated Moses because the sacrificial system was there right outside of Eden. Remember last time we gave you the little theology quiz question um, about Abel. What do we learn? What do we know from the fact that Abel, it says in Hebrews 11, offered his sacrifice by faith? Quiz again. The answer to that is, well, we conclude from that Abel was a recipient of revelation because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It was just some random idea that Adam and Eve and their sons came up with to go kill one of God's animals. There was revelation given to them. There was gospel revelation about a promised seed that was going to come. It was going to rescue them and bruise the serpent's head. And so here we see that that law, even some ceremonial parts of the law, predated Moses. But the ceremonial and civil laws ended with the coming of Christ but that moral law that was present in that initial command to Adam and Eve 
was there. And when we talk about the Ten Commandments where the moral law is summarily comprehended, they're just the, the fuller statement of the one principle. And it's that principle, it's that law, that even the Gentiles that had come to a point in their history and God giving them over to their sins, that they didn't know anything about the books of Moses. But they knew something about God. They knew something about God's law. And they showed the work of that law written in their hearts. And Paul has been working through and laboring this point that both the Jews and the Gentiles were recipients of God's law. They were transgressors of God's law and thus condemned by God's law. Now I'm lumping together some of my own future points in the message there. But I say the point here for us to understand is that of universal accountability. All men are recipients of God's law. There may have been and are lesser and greater degrees of revelation and experience and knowledge, but no one is not a recipient of the law. No one is not a subject of God's law. There is universal accountability. The moral law of God is not a mystery to any man. And Paul says, we have before proved. This is our charge. This is what we've been establishing. This is laying the groundwork for understanding the gospel is understanding the need of the gospel. Understanding the condition of men outside of Christ. Understanding where the natural man finds himself as he enters this world. He enters condemned already because he was in Adam. And of course, he's going to flesh all that out when we come to chapter 5. But Paul's doctrine and the conclusion of this opening doctrine of sin, there is universal accountability. Secondly, I put before you today the fact of universal sin. The case Paul has made describes and explains the whole of man's condition. Man is a fallen being. He is wholly corrupted. His nature as well as his actions and his attitudes are sinful. Now we're not taking a systematic course through the Scriptures and dealing with the doctrine of total depravity today. But we mention the title of that truth because it's so displayed in our passage. Total depravity, understand with me, does not mean, and we don't as Calvinists mean by that doctrine, that first letter in the tulip, um, that every man is as sinful as he could possibly be. There are sins in the catalogs of sin he's had in chapter 1, and here he's put forth the scriptural catalog in chapter 2, that not everybody commits. Not everybody is guilty of shedding innocent blood. 
but yet heart, the bent of nature that produces the crime of murder is present in every one of us. And the lesser versions of that sin, as our Lord so powerfully displays in the Sermon on the Mount, we are all guilty of. And so here, as we come to understand the depravity, the universality of sin, understand again with me, it's not that everybody has done all of the same stuff, but it's that the heart the fallen nature that produces the sins is within all of us. And it is from that nature, it is from that bent of heart and mind that all sin proceeds. If you come through and will not uh, try and highlight everything but these quotations that the Apostle brings here, there is a there's a progression and, and a categorization of these sins as you go along. We have seen uh, from verse 11, there's a blinded mind that is underneath the actions. We read there, there's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Well, what has he said in chapter 1? Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we see the result of that rejection of truth, that suppression or that attempt to suppress truth, is that God judiciously, sovereignly deals with men in their willful blindness and gives them over to the corruptions that we see displayed. And we understand that part of universal sin and depravity. We can understand then that the root of all that's in me will not be as the Pharisee that the Lord describes who prays and wants to be seen on the street corner praying, to be seen of men, and then says, I thank Thee that I'm not as other men. Lord, I thank You that I'm not like these sinners. I'm cut from different cloth than them. One of the things that impressed me when I began to study and come into the doctrines of grace and was introduced to the Puritans and older writers. Whether you look at it in the hymns, um, I mean, we sing that, uh, Oh, blessed God, how kind that one stands uh, preserved by Jesus when my feet made haste to hell and there should I have gone. I think these Puritans that have come to church history and in the understanding of right-hearted people. You know, Puritanism has become a, almost a curse word in our modern context, and they were just so prudish and bad. They weren't as good as our modern society today. What folly. But these that were marked by such clear godliness and the pursuit of godliness, but when you read their prayers, you read their hymns, you read their sermons, you read their writings... They're constantly recognizing their own sinfulness. And the very man writing these words, the Apostle Paul, and you think of what a squeaky clean reputation he must have had. He speaks of himself as the chief of sinners. That's understanding depravity. 
That's understanding that it's the heart that produces the actions. And that wicked, sinful, depraved heart afflicts all of us. And so here, Paul begins to again unfold this case. I think it's interesting that in verse 10, where he starts this catalog of quotations, we we read the different references that he pulls from. The first one, he says, there's none righteous. No, not one. What's the case he's making in Romans? The need of righteousness. And where righteousness, where perfect conformity to God's law, which is the definition of righteousness, where righteousness is lacking, sin is present. Because what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. And so when we come to the conclusion that all have sinned, which we'll read in that most famous 23rd verse, Lord willing, next time, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we see this corrupt nature producing corrupt fruit in the life. And that first quotation of being none righteous, no, not one. Righteousness is the thing demanded. And the absence of righteousness is sin. And Paul here, as he goes through the catalog, he sees verse 11, the blinded man not seeking God, rather seeking to be cut off from God, seeking to get away from God as the result. You see verse 12, universal apostasy. We read there, they are all gone out of the way. They're together, become unprofitable. There's none that doth good, no, not one. Universal apostasy, going out of the way, departing from truth, leaving that truth that you know, that you have, that you want to suppress, and leading then to the sins. You come to verse 13, he begins uh, quite an impressive list of the sins of the tongue. And we might think sins of the tongue are pretty far down the list. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But yet the Lord said it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. We may, by the mercy of God, by that that we speak of, and I think rightly so, the common grace of God, be held back from putting into action the thoughts that find release in the words. But the heart that produces it is there. And the sins of the tongue, that which I was reading one of the men, I can't remember who now, but he paused with a, a little aside that was almost poetic, speaking about the lofty ways in which the tongue can be used. Think of the, a vehicle of communication, that that expresses thought, that with which we share with one another. And you even think of God's communication to us through what? The Word. That that which can be so precious. And you think of the eternal state. Loving God and loving our neighbor with a sinless heart. 
and that the communication that proceeds out of our mouth is not, as the apostle warns us elsewhere, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that every communication, every interaction with another being is sinless. Every communication with another being is helpful. Every communication with another being is good and worthy and precious and produces deeper happiness and deeper joy and deeper communion. There's a grain of truth in the little thing we tell our children. Somebody said something mean to them to just get over it and forgive them. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But yet, in reality, that grain of truth is overshadowed by a boulder of greater truth. Words can indeed be very hurtful, very harmful. And here we see the mouth, the tongue, the speech, the communication is not left out in this catalog of sin, the sins of the tongue. But then from verse 14 to 17 is that rapid fire, is that hammer just keeps driving the nail and the scriptural references and the scriptural proof, the evidences of sin. Here we read from verse 14 following, the poison or whose mouth rather is full of cursing and bitterness, the feet are swift to shed blood. I should have said verse 15 to introduce it. That evil communication that then there's substance put to. Feet swift to shed blood. I don't think it is an accident of history, if you will, understand that word. That the first murder that we see, the first taking of another's life is right outside the gates of Eden. It's among the very children, the first offspring of fallen Adam and Eve. You know, we need to think about things like that when we toy with sin. It's a little sin. Doesn't hurt anybody. There isn't a sin that exists that doesn't hurt anybody. It's only the constant checking of every sin that holds us back from being murderers. It's only the constant checking of sin that keeps us from being as Cain. I was listening a couple sermons on this portion of Scripture and one made the sober comment that Christianity, that the truth of Scripture is the only frame of mind, the only philosophy 
only thought in the world that has an accurate definition and view of sin. Of what sin really is. If God is the creator of all things, and he is, and if the definition of right and wrong flows from his character, and it does, and if sin is the transgression of the law, which it is, and if the law is summarized in one word, that of love, then any absence of perfect love to God and perfect love to one another has marred creation. And we see in the fall of Adam, as we'll read later, whereas by one man sin entered. And what's the next phrase? It doesn't say temporary fun entered. It doesn't say long-lasting fun entered. It says, whereas by one man sin entered and death by sin. What is it we sing and often lift together at the Lord's table? Thinking of the cross of Christ. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. The blood of our Savior. Universal sin. The root of all these outward atrocities is present in every heart, every fallen son of Adam. If we see universal accountability to God's law, we're created under it and accountable to it, Jew and Gentile alike, Old and New Testament alike, everybody everywhere alike. Universal sin is on display. Then I come to our third point today quickly. There is universal condemnation. Universal condemnation. Read with me again the words of verse 19, but reading the whole of the verse this time. And we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. We can find the conclusion undergirding that opening point of universal accountability that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Universal condemnation. If you let that phrase sink in, what has Paul been dealing with from chapter 2 verse 1 to the 8th verse of the 3rd chapter? He's really been dealing with a tongue, an open mouth, making excuses for why this self-righteous, privileged, religious person 
isn't really as guilty as the bad, bad Gentile person he's talked about in chapter 1. And as he has dismantled and obliterated all of those religious persons' objections and demonstrated that everybody, Jew or Gentile, is a subject of God's law, is a transgressor of God's law, is condemned by God's law, the result of that is the mouth is stopped. It's interesting. It's vital. The Paul's unfolding of the good news of the gospel to recognize the bad news of sin. We're talking here about universal guilt. Universal accountability is a piece of that. Universal sin, the demonstration of depravity is a piece of that. And here, universal condemnation is a piece of that. Nobody's let off the hook. A holy God can't ignore transgressors. And when we come to understand that, when we are by the Spirit of God convinced of our sins, we stop bringing our excuses like Paul's just had to deal with. Our mouths are closed. There is no excuse. Here we are. I'm condemned. And rightly so. Universal condemnation. Well, let me come fourthly today, and I'm a little panicked because I've looked at the clock several times, and it's said 10 till 12 for a, a long time now. I had some problems in Sunday school, and I'm worried the problems are still there. If it still is 10 till 12, then great. I've been in a time bubble up here, and, uh, but I fear that it may be later. But universal helplessness. Read with me verse 20. Here's the closing phrases of Paul's opening argument to Romans. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now, we step back and pause here. Because Paul's introduced something in chapter 2 about judgment being according to works and according to the law. He's introduced a hypothetical there of men fulfilling the law. But of course he's demonstrated that that hypothetical is impossible because all men are fallen. It doesn't take away the reality that a fulfilled law merits the promise of life. And he's going to unfold that in chapter 5. Because while in our first representative we transgress the law and there's universal condemnation the gospel story is there's another representative there's a second man there's Jesus and the way that Jesus saves us is by himself being made under the law that he might fulfill the law both with regard to its reward and its penalty but as far as the sinner is concerned 
where there's universal accountability and universal sinfulness. There's universal condemnation and now universal helplessness. Because the thing about the law is this. Once you break it, you can't keep it anymore. Just imagine the hypothetical that at some point, let's say you're a happy-go-lucky 15-year-old and somebody brings the gospel to you that you've never heard and you're convinced by it that I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law. And then all of a sudden, again, hypothetically, you stop sinning. And you, for the rest of your life, perfectly fulfill the law. Now, we know you can't. We know you don't. But suppose you could, and you did. What about the fact that you had previously been a lawbreaker? Well, then you're still guilty. Because you broke the law. And so for men in their sin, there's universal helplessness. Paul phrases it this way elsewhere. If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law. God would not in any wise have sacrificed His Son for us if there had been a way for us to save ourselves by keeping the law or any law. But there's universal helplessness. We cannot justify ourselves by the law anymore because we're lawbreakers from day one. Even before we actually, as a little one, ask any parent, when's the first time you recognized sin in that life? And any honest parent's going to say, pretty early. We all come into the world even prior to our own individual sins condemned because we were in Adam when he sinned. And that imputed guilt is ours because we were there when he sinned. And so we don't have the ability to help ourselves. We don't have the ability to justify ourselves. To move from a position of unrighteousness in God's sight to a position of righteousness in God's sight by something we can perform ourselves. It's impossible and it's unjust. And so there's universal helplessness. The thing that perhaps brings this argument to a sobering conclusion is the very words with which it opened in chapter 1, verse 18. After Paul introduced his thesis, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
was impressed again this week with just those two words in the thesis of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he speaks to open this first foundational case to why that good news is needed. The absolute necessity of the gospel. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. We, as Paul phrases it in Ephesians 2, are naturally children of wrath. And we are helpless to do anything to come out from under that condition. But the good news, the good news, even in the last phrase of this opening argument of the revelation of wrath, the last phrase is by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the grace of God, He uses this very instrument by which we're condemned to convince us that we're condemned. To convince us of our need. And then, by His grace, compel us to flee to Christ for deliverance. Well, I apologize for whatever time it is because according to the clock, it's still 10 till 12. But I fear 12 has left us a little while ago. But let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask that you might take up familiar words, but don't let our familiarity with them, even from our youth, cause us to pass over them lightly. This is where we are outside of Christ. This makes the wonder and beauty of Christ all the greater. So minister according to the need of every heart. Lord, part us with Your blessing, the presence of Your Spirit. Lord, gather us again this evening as we would even open Your Word to consider something of this precious Sabbath day. So minister grace to everyone we ask. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.